Kia ora and welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler, a specialist GP, and today I'm fortunate to have Dr Sue Bagshaw with me to discuss the teenage brain development, how to navigate a consult with a teen and their developing brain. Sue works as a primary care doctor specialising in adolescent and youth health at a one-stop community youth health centre for those aged 10 to 25 years. She is a senior lecturer in adolescent health. She spent over 20 years working for Family Planning Association and 10 years working part-time on the methadone programme in Christchurch. Kia ora Sue and welcome. Thank you, um, Louise. Kia ora. So Sue, today we're discussing teenage brain development and how we can optimise our consultations. As a child moves to the teenage years, often we see distressed teens and all their parents in our consultation rooms. The complaints are commonly the same and relate to behavioural changes, mood changes, sleep and concerns about risk-taking behaviours. So what's going on in the teenage brain that influences these changes? Lots. There are so many changes happening. And when I think about the changes that happen between 10 and 24, it's no wonder they're so tired Mm. because there's so many changes happening. So there's changes in the brain, there's changes in the body. You grow probably about 25% of your adult weight and height. And obviously, whole sorts of changes going on in terms of sexual hormones and really big changes in the way people treat you and the way you treat other people. So that social change is massive and the way the whānau and kind of trying to find out your place in the whānau as it changes, there's a lot going on. Never mind having to learn stuff so you get a piece of paper at the end and be able to get a job better. So it's incredible. But in terms of, of the brain changes, which obviously help or hinder all the other ones, I think there's, I wish this was a visual thing because then I could show you my handy model of brain development. Um, But just to outline some of the changes, we know that um, you're born with all the, most of the anatomy present. There's a bit of growing in the first couple of years, but really, I guess, well, Brian Perry's work from the States showed that it develops from the bottom up. So it's not about developing the structures, it's more about coming online, letting the, getting electricity flowing, if you like. And I used to talk about bits of the brain linking up, and somebody told me they had a visual of bits of the brain floating around in the skull waiting to be connected. But actually, they're not floating at all. It's about switching on the wires. And we know that we're useless when we're born. The only bits that are working really are the autonomic nervous system and adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisol production. That's, That's it. And then we watch them as the rest of the brain starts to light up. They learn to walk, talk, and chew gum at the same time. It's incredible. I'm loving being being a grandparent because I can watch it. As a parent, I was way too worried to notice these changes. And um, it's interesting how then in in the teenage times, it's the middle of the brain, the limbic system, that really starts to get lit up. And the amygdala especially is important. And the amygdala looks out for threat and danger. And when you think teleologically, this is the time when you're chucked out of the, of the cave, you know, when our physiology was first developing. And so you had to start looking out for threat and danger yourself. Up till then, your parents did it for you. Now, actually, well, 50% of Australians who are 25 still live at home, and I'm sure it's the same for New Zealanders, because it's economically difficult to leave before then. But having said that, that I think is part of the issue, because the amygdala is now responding to 
thoughts instead of real danger, social media threats instead of real danger in terms of life-threatening stuff. So a lot of the angst, I think, is that normal physiological increase in the amygdala, but it's actually responding normally, but to things that really they shouldn't be responding to. But it's the stuff that the media presents to you as if it's real. So a lot of adults think, what are they worried about? There's nothing to worry about. Actually, there's masses to worry about. And it's normal to do that in terms of responding. And the other part of that is that the kind of link to the cortex, which helps you to put that perspective into um, that angst, isn't there 100% of the time. I don't think it's there 100% of the time for adults, to be quite honest. But it's only there about 20% of the time for teenagers. So I don't know if you remember, but I remember feeling so intense at that time. You know, the, the feelings were just magnified. And whether they were good feelings or bad, they were so intense. And I don't think I'd like to be back there for a million years. But at the same time, understanding that this is normal, I think is really important. And we all know what it's like to think with our emotions and think with our amygdalas when you've lost your keys and you're already late for work. How many times do you look in the same place? Two, 10, 12? Um, we have flipped our lids. We've no longer got that cortical control and we're just panicking. Imagine being like that 100% of the time. Well, it's not 100% for teenagers, but you know, it, quite a lot of the time. So I think that's number one thing to, in a communication way in terms of working with young people. First thing you have to do is acknowledge emotion. Really, really important. Because unless you do that, they're not going to be able to think straight and they can't hear what you're saying anyway. So there's no point. So you acknowledge the emotion first and then start wading into whatever is next. Um, I think it's really important, especially when it comes to informed consent and the whole Gillick competency of working with a young person, is to try and assess where they are in their cognitive development. So there's three things. Well, I think there's loads of things that change. But the main three things that I believe are important in terms of change, uh, in terms of communication, are the ability to think into the future is the, is the first thing. And when you think about it, there's no concept of time for a two-year-old. They don't think into the future. I love um, living next door to my mokapuna. When one of them was two, I would say, bye, Amaya, see you tomorrow. And she would cry. I live next door. Mm. But... For her, she had no future thinking. There was no concept of tomorrow. So I was gone forever. So that extends, obviously. And I, I'm sure you all have had the experience of talking to a, a, certainly a fairly young teenager, or tween as they call them, between 10 and 13, and asking them about how long ago something happened or how long have they been doing something for. And the usual response I'm sure you've had is ages. So... Whenever anybody says ages to me, I say, oh, was that last weekend or the weekend before? And often I'll get a, you know, a fairly, huh, a month or two. But then you have to make a mental note. That is their perception of time, their concept of time. So never talk in advance of that two, three months. Because if you do, you lose them. You get the blank look. So that's really important when it comes to relating brain development to communication. The second thing is that complexity of thought. And, and we know when you see those MRI scans and, the, and the, the brain turning blue, which is the myelination of the brain and speeding up of messages and that, that complexity of the wiring that now occurs, that's great when you're about 24 because you're getting to the maximum connections. 
But when you're 13, there's not so many. So really important to remember that when you're thinking about choices. Don't get too complex. Simple, two sentences, so much easier. And then the third thing that's important to communication is the ability to think in abstract concepts. So children are very concrete, quite literal, and then that they gradually form the ability of thinking in abstract concepts. And that's important in terms of getting your head around some of these big decisions we ask people to make. Um, so that's skill at competency, really. So if they're able to make a decision, because it's all about me, all about now, fairly simplistic and doesn't affect too much in the future, they can make that decision at a very relatively young age. So that's, that's kind of like going on the pill. Whereas if it's all about the future and it's all about very complex conceptual stuff like gender identity, then obviously there have to be a much further advanced stage of cognitive development to be able to make that decision. So that totally related to brain development. So mm -hmm. I could go on about brain development for ages. What, what else would you like me to talk about, Lou? Well, I suppose how this brain development influences our consultation, thinking about the principles that you've just talked about. So how do we maximize our consultation, given that they don't have an adult brain? What things, what tips and tricks have you got there? First thing is you chat. So you chat about what interests them, because what you're doing there is, first of all, giving them the messages. You can be trusted. You're trying to understand. You're smiley. Um, you're not judgmental. You're not going to embarrass them. But you're, at that same time, judging them in terms of where are they in their cognitive development? How are they answering these questions? Are they saying ages? Are they talking about concrete stuff in their answers? So you're all the time in that chat time. And it may seem a waste of time, but it's absolutely vital to talk about school or home or um, homework or the T-shirt they're wearing, because it's, it's how you're making that decision where they are in their cognitive development and in their journey to become an adult. And it takes two or three minutes. It doesn't take very long. Um, and you've covered half of the assessment of trying to find out the context of why they're here. Then I think the important thing is to try and find out what's important to them. A lot of adults think young people make decisions differently from adults. I don't think so. When you're making a decision, you're bringing up the pros and cons. You're looking at all those other consequences and all that kind of stuff. I bet you everybody listening has done a pros and cons chart, even in their heads, had two pros, 10 cons, and still done it. Guarantee that every one of you has done that in a certain time. But at the same time, actually, we take a bit longer over it. Young people do exactly the same. You do it because those two pros are way more important than all the other stuff, even though they're all cons. So it's really important to, I think, recognize that What's important to young people may be different from what's important to you. So find out what's important to them, because that's your opportunity then to frame your consult around what's important to them, because then they're much more likely to follow what you've asked them to do. I think that's probably one of the most important things. The other thing I think is remembering that one of the points that come up is this whole risk-taking thing. I'd like people to reframe that. In adolescent brain development, what's happening is that you're getting a rush of dopamine, dopamine giving you that satisfaction feeling, but at the same time, your receptors are being remodeled and restructured and moved around in the brain. And so you've got fewer receptors and more dopamine, and you're looking for something that will make more receptors to use up that dopamine. 
And so trying to, and this is why really we have to make sure that people don't start um, dopamine generating activities too early. So watching porn, using alcohol and other cat drugs, um, driving too fast, abseiling, doing sports that are risky, but under the influence of a drug or, or anything like that, make it more risky. So all those things that go, yes, and you get that dopamine rush, then you want to channel them into good risk-taking behaviors, if you like, that make more receptors, but not the worst ones. We all have read papers about how if you start using alcohol, cannabis, any other drug, playing video games early in life. The problem is that then that leads to more receptors, which then have to be filled in adult life as well. So that you're more likely to become dependent and have lots of things that you want to do to keep those receptors filled. Alcohol, other drugs, brilliant at keeping those receptors filled. So reframe what their behaviors are. They're actually reward-seeking, not risk-taking. So what you need to do is give them reward in healthy ways rather than in unhealthy ways. Can you give us an example? Well, an example, I was asked to talk to um, our local university residents, neighbours, and they were up in arms because the university was going to open another bar and they'd already had all these alcoholic students breaking up their letterboxes and things like that. And they said, don't do another bar, just tell them no, they mustn't have anything. And I said, no, no, no. What you do is create a climbing wall so that instead of going to the bar to drink, they're using the climbing wall. Much better way of satisfying their receptors. Right, got you. So alcohol may be there, but actually their focus is on something else which is going to give them that dopamine. And much more healthy. Excellent. All right. And just thinking about um, when brain development is complete, because there's some question about when is an adolescent an adult and when does that brain development finish? That's a really good question. I'm hoping that the doctors of the future will have pocket MRI scans and we'll be able to put it on everybody's heads and see how much blue stuff they've got. Wouldn't that be easy? But yeah, I dream. Having said that right now, we think, and there's more research to be done. I mean, MRI scan research is quite expensive, so it's fairly limited. We know that sexual reproductive puberty takes about two or three years. We know that it can start anywhere from between 8 and 16. And obviously, 16, more likely to be 16 if you're a boy. Um, we know that that rise in sexual reproductive hormones probably, not absolutely certain, but probably is what triggers the start of the cortex being lit up or being wired, if you like. And the beginning of cortex wiring to the end is probably about 10 years. So you can see from that. Somebody who starts puberty about eight may well be wired, if you like, by 18. Others, it might be 32, um, depending on when they start. So the message I really want to leave people with, there is no set age for doing things. You've got to listen to each person individually. And you might get some clues in terms of when they started puberty. But really, you've got to go from when they, how they're responding and actually listen to how they're answering. And then you get a much better judgment. You really shouldn't say they're 15, so. I mean, you can do averages and all that kind of stuff, but yeah. The other things I was wondering about as far as influencing this brain development, what do we know about prenatal influences on the teenage brains? Do we know much? Well, we certainly know about alcohol. And we know that fetal alcohol syndrome um, basically, I guess, 
it's really interesting. The classic stuff you can recognize at birth, but that's only about probably about 10% of people affected by alcohol in the room. And what when it really emerges is actually teenagehood because those connections and that wiring to the cortex doesn't, doesn't work properly. That's when the behaviors come out more too. And we know that people with FASD or even ADHD respond so much better to pictures. And it's just the way their brains are wired or the wiring's being damaged to a certain extent. There's a lot of genetic stuff as well, um, which influences that. And that's quite hard because we really don't understand how the genetic stuff influences that brain development, but obviously it's going to. And we know that there's a familial trait in most, of, most disorders that we come across. So those in utero things are important, especially alcohol. Cannabis and, and nicotine probably do more towards growth retardation than they do towards the structure of the brain and the function of it. But yeah, mostly it's genetic issues, maybe some medications. And certainly we know that violence is really important. Violence of any sort, whether it be verbal, emotional, physical, or sexual. And when violence happens to mum, it increases mum's cortisol. And that definitely affects the brain. And mum's adrenaline affects the brain of the child in utero. So I think that's a really important factor to bear in mind. And certainly in that first two, two years of life, that's a really important factor. Personally, I'd really like to reframe borderline personality disorder into post-traumatic stress injury. Mm. And that injury happening in utero or the first couple of years very much affects the ability to regulate your emotions. Because that cortical link, I think, there's no proof of this yet, but I'm sure people are looking, that is anatomically damaged. And you observe it in people's behaviors later on. You know, they just it cannot regulate their emotions. It's really hard for them. And you say to them, you know, don't do it or whatever, but they can't. It's just not there. Beautiful thing about working with young people is that if you can create a safe place for them so they feel safe, they feel at home, they feel that there's no threat or danger for them, and you can keep them talking because we know that the brain's weird. It likes to hear itself speak. That really helps to recreate and create those connections to the cortex. And there's loads of other ways of doing that, but that's probably one of the most important things we can do is provide safe places. And that's why sometimes people who have got issues at home in terms of violence of any sort find school the best place because it's safe. Mm. Whereas if they're being bullied at school and home's a safe place, then they do okay. But if you're feeling unsafe both places, that's pretty hard. You've mentioned violence. Um, just thinking about some other common presentations that we see in our rooms. Um, mood is one that I see in my rooms and uh, frequently with my teenagers. So the emotional roller coaster of mood that we often see in our worlds when we have teens involved. What's happening there that they're happy one minute, furious the next, and then life and soul of the party with no memory of being hideous? 10 minutes ago. What's going on there? It's the emotional dysregulation. Um, and also different ways of laying down memory are being developed. Um, so the hypothalamus is changing a lot. And whereas in, in children, you, you have learning memory and working memory, but you don't have kind of, I call it depository memory right. in terms of memory that's linked to other things that have already happened and you can link them all together and then make sense of them, which is that cortex connection that's happening to make it happen. 
But when that cortex connection isn't there or hasn't developed properly, then you don't have that ability to do that more depository memory. And so you forget all your emotions and then you're off into the next one because there's no control. And yeah, that's what you're trying to do is help them to create that, that emotional control by keeping talking and making sure. The other thing I think that's important to remember is that adolescents seem to have less GABA in their brain. And GABA is a brilliant neurochemical that helps to calm the brain. I'm a great fan of Daniel Siegel. And in one of his books, he talks about the, the GABA gun. And it's especially good for boys. And you can tell them to breathe. And they don't do it. They say it doesn't work. So what you say is, you've got to get out your GABA gun and spray your brain. Um, and they say, oh, what's that? So you say, <sighs> breathing out. And that's your GABA gun because that creates GABA and calms your brain. And sometimes when they're up, up in the clouds, just doing that breathing and say, hey, come on, let's both get out our GABA guns and then we can talk. Or um, making a time to talk about what's happening. Don't talk in the moment. Because when mm -hmm. they're up in the clouds or down in the dumps, they're not hearing you. And they, it's really hard to talk. So you make a time where it's going to be peaceful and quiet and safe and nobody's up in the clouds. Because, you know, it's really hard not to respond angrily to somebody who's angry. We're all human beings. And so really it's good for us both to calm down in terms of parent and child or doctor and patient um, and make another time. But I think when your patient gets angry with you as a doctor, professionally, it's really helpful if you can keep calm and you can go, yep, I really acknowledge that it's really hard for you at the moment. I'm trying my best to understand and I'm obviously not really doing a very good job. So maybe we should make another time or how about we make another time to talk about this more because it's obviously really hard for you at the moment. And I'm finding it really hard to kind of understand. And I think putting it on yourself is helpful because obviously when you get blamed, that makes you more angry. <laughs> but that's quite hard to do. It takes a lot of practice, you know, because we, we're all human beings. Mm, no, good points. I actually saw a gorgeous thing once upon a time and it was a, a jar with some water in it and it had glitter. And the analogy was, you know, shake the jar when the glitter's all scattered no point in having a conversation once the glitter's sunk to the bottom. Yeah, carry on the conversation or consider revisiting my, it. Mm. My granddaughter made me one of those just the other day. <laughs> yeah. A very simple but very effective tool to just remind ourselves that there's no point in having discussions when the glitter's everywhere. Yeah. Talking about sleep now, sleep uh, patterns are all over the place. A night owl will turn into a morning owl, a morning owl will turn into a night owl. What's going on with the sleep patterns in these young people? Well, again, I like to think back to caveman times. And when you think about caveman times, there was mum having babies all over the place and looking after babies. There was dad going out hunting, so had to get a good night's sleep in order to get food for the family. Teenagers were a bit redundant, but no, they weren't. Their job was to keep the fire going all night to make sure the wild animals didn't come close. So their diurnal rhythm moved physiologically. You know, it's taken a long time to evolve, and we're still at caveman day in evolutionary terms. And so the diurnal rhythm has moved, so they actually can do the, the rhythm is that they're most functional at night and least functional in the morning. So I reckon all high schools should follow Wellington High's model and start at 10. That actually totally makes sense because 
obviously you have to get them up on your way to work and make sure they go to school. But then you, everybody gets home at five. There's no time to get into trouble after school, which is what happens now. And life will be so much easier. And adolescents would actually function better at school. And what about, so, you know, we do have to send our teens to school, but then we have the weekends and, you know, sleep therapy would say, you know, have consistency amongst your week. But do we let them sleep in? Is that a good thing? I think it is if they've had to get up at six in order to get to school at 8.30. You know, you need a bit of a catch-up time. But I know, yes, exactly, we're supposed to keep into in regular formats. But I think as so long as it's catch-up time, no more than two or three hours, rather than sleeping till the two o'clock in the afternoon, I think that's okay. So long as you're getting some up sometime in the morning, I don't think that upsets the regularity too much, because they do need catch-up, because we, we've imposed these stupid times on them, which are totally against their natural rhythms. Thinking now about screens, so um, you alluded to it earlier on, but this is probably one of the biggest issues that I see amongst my young patients. And it seems to that screen use is compounding. They're using them at school, they're using it at home, they're using it in the weekends. You mentioned uh, a little bit about brain development. What do we do? What do we advise? What's a safe level of screen time? When should we start our young people on screens? And how do we motivate them to get off them? Well, I think, to be honest, we as adults don't give a very good example, number one. Number two, that's our way of life at the moment. You know, culturally, we're all on screens. I think number three is, it's a bit like when television first came. You know, horror, terrible. These children are spending all time in front of the television. It's just dreadful. And there was moral panic. And it's exactly the same happening with phones. The difference is that with a phone, a smartphone, you've got a computer in your hand. So your range of exposure to a whole load of different things is far greater. So I think the first thing we have to do is to teach critical thinking. We're not going to stop screen use. No way. We're not going to stop it for ourselves. So how could we stop it for adolescents? So I think the first thing is to teach critical thinking, teach them to think, Who's saying this? Why are they saying it? When did they say it? What are they trying to achieve? So that you're much more objective at what you're taking in. And some schools are actually teaching this really well. And like some teenagers, they're, wow, way ahead of a lot of adults I know. The second thing is I think no, no child should be exposed to a screen of any sort, whether it be television or whatever, before two. Because you really need to have that interactive communication. People don't learn language unless you're responding to them and they're responding to you. And you don't get that from screens. I mean, maybe Zoom helps, but it's not the same. So I think that's really important. Um, in terms of balance, and again, I think this happened the same with television. It's learning to do lots of different things. So not just screen time, not just sports, not just music, not just but a bit of everything. But not too much of everything. I mean, I know some kids, they're exhausted by the end of the day because one day they're doing ballet, next day they're gym, then they're doing sport, then they're doing music. Then They have no downtime whatsoever. So mm. really careful for middle-class children. Don't push them too much. Then you've got the other spectrum where they don't have any access to any of those things, which is just as bad. When you think about protective factors in order to kind of help brain development happen really well, there's probably about five or six things that are really important. 
And interestingly enough, I've just read a paper called Positive Child Experiences. And um, it was a longitudinal cohort study, a bit like our Otago study, looking at the protective factors and how they link to helping prevent adult depression. And they're things like, interestingly enough, having a meal around the table every day as a family. Mm -hmm. Things like being able to participate in a group, belonging to a group. And ideally, you belong to your whanau first, and then maybe you belong to other groups as you get older. So that sense of belonging. Being able to contribute a skill, or well, first of all, being able to learn a skill, and it doesn't matter what kind of skill. And it may not be like an academic skill. It could be building things out of matchsticks. It doesn't really matter as long as you're developing a skill. And the fourth thing is being able to contribute. So volunteering. And the fifth thing is participating in decision making. But again, not too complex decisions, but being part of deciding what happens with the family, especially decisions that affect you, of course, but participating in that kind of decision making, really important to help developing brain. And when you look at, I don't know, the stars of sport or music or whatever, they've started early, they've had massive support from their parents. And they've got lots of pleasure out of it as they've been learning. Brilliant. If all of us had that kind of opportunity, we'd have very different adults in the world. And obviously those decisions that they're making are age appropriate. So what you're doing is starting off with really simple things. I remember when my kids were growing up, I would say, well, you could do this and this might happen and you could do this and this might happen. And my kids would say, ah, enough, mom, you're overloading my circuits. <laughs> so, you know, not too many. And then as that, you know, that wiring increases, then you can give a few more. The other thing I'd like to just remind people of is that as that wiring is increased, sometimes you get crosswires. So young people can often read, and they've done some experiments on this, they read anger when you think your face is showing anxiety. So really important to check what your face is showing because it may be being misinterpreted. So you check with the young person, how do you think I'm feeling at the moment? And of course, if in terms of autism spectrum disorder, that's quite hard for some young people because they, they, they can't interpret. So that's a really good clue because then you can say, well, maybe we can find some help for you to be able to learn how to interpret. Yeah, that's a great point. So we mentioned risk-taking, or we're going to reframe that now as reward-seeking. How do we keep our young people safe while they're learning to do this? Unfortunately, you almost can't. Well, you know, I liken it to toddlers. They're learning to walk. How do they learn to walk? They do it. Mm. And they fall over and they hurt themselves. And you're right there to pick them up and kind of help them to feel better. It's exactly the same. But this time it's emotional. They won't, they can't learn if you wrap them up in cotton wool. It's the most suffocating way of bringing up kids. So in a way, you've got to try and make sure that you've helped them to think through and all that kind of stuff, which they wouldn't do on their own. And then you've got to let them do it mm. and hope and pray that you've taught them well enough and role modeled well enough for it to turn out okay. But if it doesn't turn out okay, to be there to pick up the bits early and make sure that they don't feel guilty about it, that they don't feel judged about it. But you say to them, what have you learned from what happened? And so you mentioned um, gaming. And again, that's, you know, ties into the screen time, ties into the risk taking. Is there a, 
a golden age that we should try and hold off until they're exposed to gaming. And when they are gaming, how long do we let them game for? Is there any data yeah. about that? I don't, I don't think there's any, it's any particular time length. I think the most important thing is doing more different things. So obviously, if you, that's all you're doing all day, that's dangerous because you're setting yourself up to not being able to do anything else because you're getting the dopamine from the video gaming um, or the receptors being filled. It's the same with anything, really. It's if you're not doing other things as well, that's the dangerous bit. So I think length of time is not so important. I think it's doing other things is really the important bit. And then the other important bit, I think, is it's hard to say an age because, like I said, everybody develops at different stages and rates. But I think you want to be able to have at least um, average age 16 to 18. And some people will be older. Some people might be. I don't think most, most kids aren't old enough before 16, I think, to spend too much time. But yes, definitely early teens. You can almost divide adolescent development into about three stages. That's classically how it's divided. And the early time when they're finding their feet, the brain development is coming on, the, the limbic system is starting to fire up, the amygdala is starting to fire up, but that cortex connection isn't working. And that's that kind of 8 to 13, 14, depending if you're a boy or a girl type of thing, or when puberty started. And then there's that middle time where it's really all about identity, what other people think of me, what do I think of other people, really kind of exploring how do I get there, where do I fit, how do I present myself. And that, I think, is a, quite a dangerous time in terms of soaking up social media. So really important to kind of help them to get perspective, critical thinking, teaching, absolutely vital, restricting. Certainly that early, early teenage, you've got to restrict and make sure they're only watching age-appropriate age stuff because it really can damage some of those connecting cortex stuff. And then late adolescence where they're trying to really solidify that concept of identity, choosing partners, choosing jobs, all those kind of things. And the trouble is when you're given tasks which aren't appropriate to your stage of development of your brain, that's when things go wrong too. So, you know, I know quite a few young teenagers who are parenting their parents mm. and looking after them. And that's not age appropriate. And that's probably almost worse than video gaming at that age because it's not the appropriate thing to help brain development happen healthily. So getting them into groups, getting them into doing things in a sense of belonging, participating, contributing, brilliant things to happen. Okay, so a little bit of gaming as long as we're doing everything else. Yeah. yeah. All right, and obviously negotiated, which will help with their decision-making, make them feel empowered. So that authoritative parents, parenting style, which I think doctors need to do as well, is clear boundaries, high warmth, high consistency, and negotiation. Thinking now about the building blocks for a good brain as far as food goes, so, you know, our young people, as they're moving away from home, they're starting to become more independent, hanging out with their friends. Um, what do we need to ensure nutritionally? What are the building blocks for optimal development? Well, like my mother used to say to me, a little bit of everything, not too much of anything. <laughs> and definitely try not to encourage diets, whether it be a FODMAP or whatever kind of diet. I think it's really helpful not to talk about dieting. 
because what you're trying to do is encourage a healthy relationship to food and learning. Unfortunately, it's really hard to learn this because in our culture at the moment, we're inundated with adverts for food, programs about food, everything's about food. And the message is you, you live to eat, but actually you eat to live. Eating is about survival. It's not about spending your whole life thinking and preparing and eating food. Obviously, in adolescence, you're growing like mad. So you probably need more food than you did when you were younger and you will do when you're older. The problem is, though, if you get, into, get used to eating a lot more food, especially carbohydrate-rich food, it's really hard to, to not eat as much as you're getting older. And that's where the weight really goes on. Obviously, there's a genetic thing around gaining weight and keeping weight on, and there's polycystic ovary syndrome for girls and all those other factors that lead in. But if we can encourage people to try and make sure they eat a little bit of everything, then I think that's really important. And, you know, it's okay to eat biscuits sometimes, but not all the time. It's mm -hmm. okay to eat chips sometimes, but not all the time. So it's not like food is po the some foods that are poisonous, although obviously if you're allergic, there are some foods that are poisonous. But I think it's really important to get say food is there in order for you to live. And actually keep it in perspective. It's not such a big deal after all. In, we're physiologically made for periods of starvation. Because in hunter-gatherer days, when our physiology developed, there were periods of starvation because some animals couldn't be caught or hunted down. So our bodies were made to deal with that and survive with that. And I'm not saying we should do periods of starvation, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, we don't have to be eating all the time. We don't, I really don't think we need to be having breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, di dinner. To me, that's over the top. However, for children, and especially younger children and babies, they probably do need to eat that often because they're growing very rapidly. And actually for adolescents, when that really growth phase happens at the beginning of puberty, they probably do need to eat that often, but not all the time. Okay. And what about, um, there's a lot of talk about omega-3. And if they can stick to fruit and veggies for snacks. Omega-3? Yeah, omega I think one of the problems is that our, our food is very processed and we don't get the minerals and vitamins that perhaps we should do because it's been so processed. To be honest, most food additives, vitamins and, and omega-3 and all those sort of things, if you're eating a varied diet, you should be getting absolutely sufficient in your diet. Okay. And most vitamins you actually eat out. <laughs> yes, no, I'm thinking more, more as a whole food source. So, you know, um, I often see children who are eating these very highly processed diets that are sugar-laden, chemical-laden, preservative-laden, and it's like, well, if we can just take you back to eating foods that look like food, they, um, they, they look like meat, they look like vegetables, they look like fruit, then that's a really good starting place and something that we should really be promoting. And if we can try and make sure that people have water and then as a special treat fizzy rather than fizzy all the time. Absolutely. Um, so just moving now on to the more worrying substances, I suppose, um, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine. What messages should we pass on to our teens about these things? Some parents will have a zero alcohol approach till a certain age. Others are just like, oh, well, if they want it, they can have it. What should we as a health professional be telling our patients? I think the important thing to get your head around is that 
the developing brain is very sensitive. I remember hearing a psychiatrist give a lovely story to a young person. She said, there's different sorts of brains. Some people have brains like precision Swiss wristwatches. They're carefully set, they're precise, but you breathe on them, they go out of balance, but especially if you drop them. Other people have switch, swatch watch brains. You can flush them down the toilet and they keep going. You have a precision wristwatch brain, and if you take any drugs whatsoever, it will upset the balance. I'm so sorry you've been born with one of those, but that's, the, that's how it is. So I think if we can go from, look, your brain's still developing, and you talk about the handy model and all the things that are developing, I hope you agree with me that we really want that your brain to be as the best it possibly can. And therefore, upsetting it with alcohol or any other drug is going to be mean that you're not going to function as well as you'd like to function. Um, and I know right now it seems like it's really attractive. And later on in your life, when your brain's kind of better formed, you've given it a chance to really develop well. Then you can, you can choose and you can weigh up the pros and cons of the good things and the bad things about caffeine, about alcohol, about cannabis, about whatever. But I'd like you to make that decision for yourself because it's really important that you learn to do that right now at 16, 13, 14, so that you can decide later on as your brain is forming and it gets really well formed, you've got that really good decision making about way more important things than how you use stuff like this. And I think it's really important to actually acknowledge that alcohol, caffeine, all the drugs make us feel good. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. And so, Helping them to um, try and find other things that make them feel good, brilliant. We have to role model that, though. And as long as we're role modeling, oh, having a drink when I come home at night to relax, then they will follow that, or having a smoke or whatever. So I think actually pointing out that, yes, it's good to relax. It's great to use. It's a wonderful social lubricant. It helps your anxiety. But while your brain is still developing, it's not going to help. It's actually going to make it worse because your brain won't develop those skills on its own. Yes, and I suppose that um, we don't know what kind of brain you've got is always a tricky yeah. one, isn't it? We don't know if yeah. you're going to be the child or young person who this will adversely affect. So, you know, why risk it? We can have some clues in terms of family history and we can point that out to people. But I think trying to explain. Kids are really onto it these days, I've found. And I think trying to explain to them logically and carefully, acknowledging emotion is really helpful. And not once, but three times, four times, five times until they tell you what you've been telling them for the last three years. Got it. So we've talked about alcohol, which moves quite nicely onto illicit drugs and drug exposure in the developing brain. You mentioned marijuana, and that's always something that's worrying in my world so again what do we know as far as exposure goes i think the very important thing is not to treat them as legal and illegal they are all drugs i would personally like all drugs to be legalized and they become a health issue not a moral one because it is a health issue it affects your body affects your mind affects your brain and some more than others so we know that methamphetamine really affects your dopamine production and leaves you absolutely down and depressed and ghastly. But because it depletes the dopamine production, you need it to keep functioning and doing well. 
you keep getting more. And explaining to kids and to you know, adults, this is what happens. So don't even start because you won't be able to stop. And nicotine is probably the most addictive at all. When I worked on the methadone program, people found it easier to come off opiates than, than nicotine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably the most dangerous of all in terms of getting started. And vaping is just another way of marketing nicotine. And we really have to put it in that category. So many of my patients now say to me, oh, I've given up smoking. I say, oh, that's good. Yeah, I'm vaping now. It's just the same. The marketing has been so clever. You've got a lot of fighting to do against the marketing of drugs of all sorts. So it's really quite hard to kind of come, come up against that. I think we need to take some lessons from these social marketing for these marketers and actually do social marketing of good things in the same way as they do. The other thing I wondered about, Sue, was privacy and what does a developing brain need from us as their primary healthcare provider to get them to open up? I think go slowly is number one, um, especially people who have been through um, a lot of trauma, and I say trauma, that word is used far too lightly these days, but um, verbal or emotional or physical or sexual abuse, or neglect, because they don't trust people, because they've learned not to. So you've got to go slowly. Um, So not expecting too much and not being all over them, but just starting quietly. Hi, you know, introduce yourself, obviously. Get them to introduce themselves. And I love the mihi approach in terms of you know hi i'm sue um, i'm the doctor here haven't been here very long you don't have to do two personal um before you know i before this i was working in so and so place where, where do you come from have you always lived here um have you moved around heaps and you get really interesting answers in terms of the way that question is answered hence the cognitive development judgment so you know it's that kind of just slow and then trying to make sure they always leave feeling good because you've praised them up for coming or you've noticed something great about them or you've give, given them some feedback. Gosh, you must be a really good friend to somebody because I can see you're really loyal or, you know, just something good that you can pick out about them so that they leave feeling good. And you're working with feelings. You're not working with thoughts. You're working with feelings. Now, so just before we conclude today, I was just thinking, reflecting back on something you mentioned about violence and violence and bullying, parental violence or neglect. I mean, this can continue into these years. If a young person tells you that something like that's going on at home, obviously we need to act, but what is it about? I I think I know where you're going. Yeah, I think it's really important not to rescue. I remember after the earthquakes in Otatahi, what happened was that we started making our own plans. You know, we had to share an idea. It was a brilliant way of getting recovery going. It was brilliant. Um, but then Wellington came down and said, no, 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 no. This is going to be a big bill. We're going to be providing the money. So you have to do what we tell you to do. And we'll do it for you. It'll be fine. We'll take over. It was a disaster. Some of their projects that they came up with still haven't been done. Started, never mind finished. It was an absolute disaster. And that's what we do to our patients so often, especially our young ones, because we think we know best. So we dive in and say, oh, this is terrible for you. We must remove you or we must do something about this. We'll do it for you. It'll be okay. Disaster. 
So the first thing is to listen to their story and listen to what they think they can do about it and then ask them, how can I help you to do something about it? If they haven't got any ideas, then you can come up with some ideas. But I think really important not to rescue them, to actually give them suggestions, help them to make choices about how, what, how they could respond in the situation that they're in. Obviously, assuming they're still safe. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, I think it's more unsafe to rescue them because what you're doing is getting them dependent on somebody rescuing them. And they're not learning to deal with unsafe situations. Obviously, if it's acute, then you, you need to do something. The way I explain confidentiality is I say, I need to tell somebody else because I need to have their help to help me to help you better. I'm going to tell somebody else in order to help you better. And if you add that phrase, they understand that. They know that you can't do everything. They know they need some help. And if you work out together negotiation, what kind of help will be best in terms of what they can do about it? And you um, say to them, look, let's bring somebody else in here. And it could be their parents. It could be a psych emergency. It could be whoever. But you work it out together. So you're role modeling problem solving and you're giving them the skills they need to actually make keep safe, not just remove them from this unsafe situation. Yeah. And I suppose we didn't mention that at the beginning, but actually having that discussion as you bring the young person into the room, that there are those conditions of confidentiality so that if something does come up, it's been something that's already been discussed. Sometimes I actually don't do it at the beginning. I, I well, sometimes I forget, but also I find it's a bit off-putting. It's like they're on their guard then. I better yes. not say anything too much because they might say tell somebody else. So I think bringing it up in the moment of the revealing to make sure that they know you're trying your best to help them um, and they've revealed something quite serious and risky. And in order to help them, you need to bring somebody else in. No, that's a really good point. Thanks, Sue. All right. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. I just wanted to wrap up our podcast today. What would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please, Sue? Listen. Listen to where your patients are in terms of their development and make your consults a conversation um, and help them to know that you're really interested in them. Because, it, you know, it's, it's, an old age, it's an old adage, but if your patients, whatever age I find, but especially young people, if they know you care about them, then they'll care about what you say. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sue. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please do that. You'll find a list of resources used in this podcast at goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for listening today.